Welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode called Thousand Ton Sucker Punch, we tell the amazing story of World War I Q-ships, seemingly harmless merchant ships armed to the teeth and designed to sink German submarines. It's an incredible story, it's incredible history, and it combines mechanical prowess, bravery, and creativity in ways the world had never seen. Welcome to this episode of Dorkomotive. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. Welcome to this next episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And this is going to be an interesting show, not just for the historical, mechanical, and kind of surprising elements of it, but really the genesis of where this show came from. And I don't just mean the Q-ships in general, but where it came from kind of from my perspective was the language and is the language of hot rodding. Q-ships are cars, sleepers, if you will, cars that look slow but are very fast, and they are the type of cars that people like to brag about owning, they are the type of cars that people like to sometimes brag about being beat by, and they're the type of cars that people love to watch on the internet anywhere else. If you see something that looks like your grandmother would drive it, but it is incredibly fast and it surprises everyone, it's a fun thing. And back in the day, and less so frequently now, those cars were referred to as Q-ships, and it was something that always kind of puzzled me because I didn't understand the reference. I didn't know where it was coming from. And so that led me down this rabbit hole to start investigating, to start researching, to start learning about Q-ships. Well, Q-ships, the term comes from World War One, and that's what we're going to be talking about here. We're going to be talking about this effectively secret fleet of ships that were developed in England that were designed to stop a threat that appeared as though it may actually end their country's existence in the form of German U-boats. And when we go through the history, the background, and actually talk about the kind of execution and how these things were used, I guarantee you'll be blown away by a few elements of this story. Most importantly, the human courage element, which will come to bear when we start talking about the engagements that these Q-ships involved themselves in. But now you know a little bit of the background of what captured my attention. It's time now to turn our back, our history, our, our focus, if you will, to the background and the history of where Q-ships came from. And to do that, we really got to set the stage and start talking about World War One. And World War One uh, doesn't get the credit that World War II does uh, for many reasons. Obviously, it's 100 years in, in the past now, but... So much more is available to read about and study about World War II. It, it makes researching World War I kind of fun because you have to really dig around and, and find your stuff in maybe some unique locations. So when we talk about World War I, it was really the first mechanized war. It was tanks, although they came later in the war. Of course, ships, the, the high seas were a, um, a massive battleground as they were in World War II. Uh, we see the use of trucks, and again... All these things are coming online as the war is moving along. When the war started, it was very, very old school. Obviously, uh, lots of horses, lots of draft animals, um, and that just kind of was the way that, that it worked as technology became more robust, as uh, generals became more creative in using that technology. We see so many advancements happening throughout the war. 
But when we talk about any sort of world war, we got to talk about the ocean. We have to talk about navies. And when we talk about navies, we have to talk about Britain because uh, Great Britain, for the uh, vast majority, even to this to this point in history, has a world class navy. But uh, for the majority of that country's existence, it was the preeminent naval power on earth. Bar none, end of story. They had the biggest fleets, they had the biggest ships, they had the baddest guns, they had the best stuff. And they were the best trained Navy in the world. At the time of World War I, the Germans, who obviously were the instigators uh, and the, the prime movers to try to win this war for their side, had amassed a very impressive imperial fleet of their own. Many battleships, they had a, a full complement of anything you could think of. Battleships, destroyers, cruisers, dreadnoughts, they had, you know, they had a big lineup as well. They did not have uh, as big a fleet, of course, as England did because they just didn't have the accumulated time to amass the amount of stuff that England had, nor did they have, um, they didn't have the raw ability to produce ships at the speed that could be produced in the United Kingdom slash England during that time period. So German strategy, when we get to talking about World War I, they start fighting. Obviously, they make great inroads, uh, pushing themselves uh, towards the west. And on the ocean, their strategy was was quite different, actually. They had some designs on trying to lure the British fleet into some traps. And what they were going to try to do was they were going to try to take the British fleet and kind of death by a thousand cuts. They wanted small skirmishes, small battles that they could slowly and incrementally kind of even the odds they had against them. They did not want full-on uh, massive fleet battles with battleships dominating everything because they knew that they couldn't stand up to that. But what they did want were some attacks that they could maybe get a battleship here or there, get some destroyers off the, off the ocean, do some things to basically try to bleed out the British Navy. And they were somewhat successful to a degree early on in the war. And all of this is going to set up our, our cue ships, and it's really important that we have all this context to kind of understand um, understand what's going on. So now you know that the Germans are really at the mercy of England when it comes to naval power. We also know that uh, the Germans, uh, the, we know that Britain can use that naval power in a variety of ways. And the biggest way they were using it during World War One was as a blockading force, and they were stopping about 55% of the ships from even getting into the German waters. And they were blockading everything, and not just war material, but food, supplies, clothing, whatever, raw materials. Uh, the British naval blockade of Germany was very successful, and it was, in a lot of ways, starting to choke off the country, and it certainly was hurting them industrially when they could not get the raw materials to make things that they needed to uh, continue to kind of feed the war machine, so to speak, and feed their own population. Now, when you have a naval blockade, uh, the idea, of course, is that you stop the ships and turn them around or you claim them. You don't sink the ships. That is not typically what a blockade does. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of arcane rules out there for naval engagements and, and things to do and how a navy works and what you know what's proper what isn't in terms of uh, warships and merchant ships and everything else and warships and merchant ships become the intersection of of where the q ship ends up making its bones and, and why it needs to exist because as england is is choking out germany and as they are working very hard to stop these ships and to um 
really prevent the country from being able to to actually fight a war the germans need to do something to to, to fight back and they decide that they're going to have a a big naval engagement this would be happening in uh june of 1916 and this is going to happen uh it's called the battle of jutland it's going to happen in the north atlantic and the idea is that the German fleet was going to try to draw some of these British ships over and they were going to attack and it was going to be a, uh, a situation where Germany could use their naval power to help even the odds against England. And the biggest thing they wanted to do was to try to break, break the blockade. If they could pull all these ships away, engage them in a fight, and start picking them off, then that blockade's going to fail and they'll be able to get more supplies in there. So it's fought off the coast of Denmark. It is an incredible battle. This is 250 ships in total. Think of that. 250 ships engaging in this thing, both sides. 14 British ships are sunk. 11 German ships are sunk. 9,823 casualties are recorded over the course of uh, basically a day-long battle. May 31st to June 1st, 1916. And... It was an embarrassment for England because they lost more ships. It was not a victory for Germany because they could not afford to lose 11 ships. And the last thing they wanted to do was have these full fleet engagements. They they fell into their own trap. As they tried to lure the British in, the British kind of figured out what was going on, and they sent everybody they could over there to try to, to really try to wipe out the German fleet. So Britain failed to wipe out a lot of German ships. The Germans failed to do anything to kind of to, to break the stranglehold that uh, that England had had on their seas. And this Battle of Jutland is interesting because it marks the really the end, the final naval battle in world history that was dominated by battleships. You know, we don't really talk about battleships in the modern world anymore because they don't need to they don't need to exist. They don't serve a, a valuable naval purpose anymore. You can. Uh, you can have a ship with 18-inch guns on it, and that can bombard the shore from X amount of miles away, but it's it's kind of one cruise missile away from infamy. So, the the battleship really peaked in its um, in its combat at this Battle of Jutland. And yes, battleships played a role in World War II. We know all that. Um, but when it comes to their their role as a naval kind of prime mover, Battle of Jutland is the last fully dominated kind of battle fought by big battleships and forgive me a little bit in this show we're going to be moving around a little bit historically here so the battle of jutland was fought in 1916 and once germany lost that battle their fleet had to return to home port and they became known what is in in naval terms what is known as a fleet in being and what a fleet in being means is that yes there is a naval fleet they are not actively going anywhere. They are not actively fighting anyone. They are kind of a passive deterrent. So once that loss occurred at Jutland, it, it really was a draw, but at the end of the day, it was a loss for the Germans. They went back to port, and their navy became effectively a fleet in being. They no longer and would not, over the course of the war, actively engage in another battle of, of any scope, let alone the size of the Battle of Jutland. So what happens then? Well, what happens then is something that had actually started in 1914 gets ramped way up. And the Germans decide that if we can't win this thing on a naval front with our traditional navy, this is going to be submarine warfare. And it was terrifying submarine warfare for England. 
And it was terrifying submarine warfare for England because what the Germans did for the first time in history is that they took the gloves off of submarines. And this was a new weapon of war. This was a weapon of war that people were still figuring out how to properly design, how to properly build, how to construct, how to actually operate them in the most effective manner. But everybody knew the submarine was a game changer. And the English Navy was way behind the German Navy on submarines, way behind them. They didn't put a lot of credence into them. They didn't put a lot of design and effort research into them. The Germans had piled all kinds of money into the R&D of submarines, and they had, not surprisingly, the best ones in the world. So, you know, we know the Battle of Jutland took place in 1916, and that is really going to just um, kind of propel Germany into this, this period of unrestricted submarine warfare. But what we have to go back to is 1914. And we have to go back to 1914 because that's really the initial stage of the war. This is when we start seeing submarine action. And really the very first ever patrol of German submarines around the waters of England, the United Kingdom, they sunk nine warships. They lost five submarines, but they sunk nine of the other guys' ships. And believe it or not, after that first patrol, they really didn't do a whole lot against a lot of warships. And this may seem counterintuitive, but why, you know, what do you, why are they failing at hitting the warships? It's because they're a harder target. Um, warships, if you're going to attack one of them, you have to make sure you, you got a good plan because they're going to shoot back, unlike merchant ships. And tactics can get developed. You know, sea captains figured out, especially captains of, of large ships, that if they sailed in a zigzag-style pattern, uh, they were nearly impossible to hit with a torpedo. Torpedoes traveled in straight lines. We're going to talk about all this stuff. But a torpedo moving in a straight line, if you're zigzagging your ship, um, is probably not going to hit you. That being said, you have to spot the torpedo. You have to understand what's going on. You have to know that there's a submarine in the area. But uh, in terms of... German submarines versus English warships, not a whole lot to talk about there. Yeah, they sunk a few of them, but it was German submarines versus merchant ships is what the crux of this story is going to be. And there was never a time in history before this where somebody openly and actively and admitted that they were just going to sink everything in sight, and it did not matter if it was a warship it did not matter if it was a merchant ship. It did not matter if it was a passenger ship. They didn't care. They told the world as much. And we're going to talk about the implications of that. We're going to talk about why they did it. And we're going to talk about what ultimately was the undoing of this German unrestricted warfare plan. So to start and set up this whole part of the story, we have to talk about something called prize rules. And prize rules are, you know, old school... You know, one of the things that always cracks me up about history is when we look back, and especially when we talk about war, we talk about the machines of war, we talk about the tactics of war, is that oftentimes these things, these rules, these laws of war, if you will, are created in rooms of diplomats and politicians and people who will never, will never actually fight, who will never actually employ any of these things that they're talking about. And yet they sit around and make the rules. And, and prize rules were developed... I mean, way back in the uh, you know 1800s, maybe earlier than that, and they are basically naval standards. And the prize rules stated that if you are in a warship and you come upon a merchant ship, you have to do a couple of things. The first thing is that you have to tell everybody on that merchant ship that is no threat to you, 
hey, uh, you need to uh, stop. we got to talk for a second here. The second thing is if you're going to sink it, you have to let everybody off and, and to safety. Okay, you can't just say, okay, we're going to sink the boat in five minutes. The prize rule stated that you would have to get these people off their own ship to safety. And thirdly, um, you had to basically make sure that they had well, the, the, the people were taken care of. So you could not just roll up to a freighter or a little steamer if you're in a battleship and start leveling rounds into it. Now, if they shot at you, that's a different story. But if you're in a warship, the prize rules say that you can't shoot first. And it was in 1912 at, at one of these conferences uh, that a British former admiral made a statement and kind of read a, a, a theoretical paper, if you will, regarding submarines and these prize rules. And this is 1912, so this is before World War I. This is uh, really this very early dawn of the, the submarine age. And this is uh, Admiral John Jackie Fisher. He was a retired first sea lord of the British Navy. And he said, hey, listen, guys, like these prize rules are, are not going to work for submarines. A submarine can't capture a merchant ship. It doesn't have any manpower to deliver the ship to a, a neutral port. And then it doesn't have any room to take the prisoners. So not only can the submarine not really take over another ship, it can't it can't help the very people that we're talking about making these rules about. The the crews of the merchant ships are, are going to be in big trouble here. And so he ends this the, the paper by basically saying there's nothing a submarine can do except sink a ship that it's captured. And if a merchant ship are armed, which is permitted, they are permitted to have a gun on a merchant ship. The captain of that submarine is going to be doubly pressured to destroy the merchant ship because uh, they don't want it shooting at anybody else. They don't want to shoot at their guys. And he asked this rhetorical question to the group. He stood back and he said, what if the Germans were to use submarines against commerce without restrictions? He asked this question in 1912. He says, what if they just decide that they're going to sink everything? What if they do that? Well, the answer, very British, came back, and this was apparently Winston Churchill was involved in this discussion back then. One of the guys stood up, whether it was Churchill or somebody else, and said, it's inconceivable that a civilized power would ever do such a thing. Well, two years later, it became very conceivable because we moved to 1914, England is in the grips of not a blockade. They are in the grips of a, a submarine-infested encirculation of their country. England is in big trouble because German submarines are sinking everything. They have gone by and decided not to follow these prize rules. They have decided that any ship that is coming into the waters of the North Atlantic is basically a warship. They've made these public declarations that any basically ship they see, they're going to sink, or at least they're going to try to. And they quickly figured out that the only way they were going to be able to win this war, at least in their own mind, was to try to starve England out. And in order to starve England out, they knew they couldn't send a surface fleet there because the, the British fleet was so superior to theirs. They would learn that in, a, in more painful ways in a couple of years ahead, but even in 1914, they knew that. So they sent the submarines, 
and these submarines would, would lurk, and they would just shoot and sink everything. November of 1914 is when the U-boat blockade of England starts, and uh, you know I would describe their strategy as try your luck. You want to come sail a ship to England, try your luck. Now, there were some exceptions here. If you were a ship flying non-British colors, if you were an American ship, if you were a ship from Denmark, if you were a ship from Norway, if you were a ship from anywhere, you do not have the colors of England or the United Kingdom flying on your, on your boat, they let you through. If you're a British ship, on the other hand, you're fair game. Germany was highly concerned about getting America involved in World War I. They did not want that to happen for all the reasons that you would expect. At this time in history, America is not in the position it is today or has been for most of these last hundred years. It is not in a position of global leadership, but you know, at this point in history, America is kind of like the, the big, strong, younger brother. Your friend's got this, got this younger brother, and the kid's coming along, and you know he's going to be really, he's going to be a bruiser when he gets older. But as of, as of this moment, he's not that mature. He's still kind of figuring his way. Doesn't really know exactly what's going on. That was America in in the 19 teens in the World War One time frame. Everybody knew what was going to happen, but it just hadn't happened yet. So Germany was uh, was doing their best not to sink ships, or at least trying not to sink ships that were not directly related or from England. This is a blockade being executed by about 20 U-boats. And you got to remember that too. So Germans, of course, call their submarines U-boats. And we're going to talk about their mechanics and stuff here in a few minutes. But they're blockading the country with, with basically 20 submarines. And in January of 1915, they sunk 43,000 tons of shipping. By the next month, they sunk 100,000 tons. And the 100,000 tons would be a, a, a drop in the bucket in the coming years. There were months where they would ship, they would sink 600,000 tons of shipping. If you're thinking, if you're sinking 100,000 tons, you're basically a month, you're basically averaging two ships a day. Two ships a day. And it just goes on and on and on. It gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, Germany's you know, strategy here, of course, is to continue to ramp up this attack and to ramp up this ownership of of merchant shipping to the point where the country can't sustain itself and they have to come to the table and, and negotiate. There are a couple of problems with this particular strategy. And, um, you know, one of them is that the German guys, the, 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 the submarine captains, had this super annoying habit of um, sinking passenger ships with Americans on it. And it became a super annoying habit uh, to America, uh, especially to Woodrow Wilson, and it became a very annoying habit to the German government as well because they were kept being forced to apologize. So May of 1915, German U-boat sinks the Lusitania, which is a uh, passenger liner that was going across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, you can make an argument that the Lusitania was, was technically a warship because supposedly it had ammunition in its hold as well as all these passengers. But in May of 1915, single torpedo sunk a massive cruise liner in 11 minutes, killing 1,200 people, 128 Americans. The Germans, uh, the government, jumped on the excuse train, said, hey, there was ammo on board. What do we want us to do here? You know, blah, blah, blah. America, very angry. And in Wilson, the, the president, sends on July 21st an ultimatum that the 
U.S. would regard any sinking of this type, of any sort of non-military vessel, as deliberately unfriendly, quote-unquote, to the United States. They did not declare war at this time, but you could tell what the path was on here. So that was the first one. Then we go to August 19th, 1915. The SS Arabic, which is a White Star passenger liner, gets torpedoed by a German U-boat, sinks in 10 minutes, kills 44 passengers, three of those being Americans. So then on 28 August 1915, in in a literal desperate attempt to stop the United States from coming into the war, the Chancellor of Germany orders that no passenger ship can be sunk by a U-boat. And amends that order and says, okay, you can, but you have to evacuate all the passengers and crew before you do it. So this goes out to the U-boat captains. Do not sink, do not torpedo, do not attack passenger ships. Which, great news for anybody traveling on a ship, which at this point was pretty much everybody because you couldn't fly anywhere. September 18th the of 1915, the German high command says that submarines can no longer attack merchant vessels at all. And again, all this is to being done to try to prevent America from getting into the war. So on December 22nd, 1916, about, you know, three or four months later, I should say about five months later, a German admiral proposes that if Germany is able to sink 600,000 tons of merchant ships a month, it'll break the British back in about six months. If they can do that for six months straight, they can they can break the British will and they'll they'll be able to go to the table and negotiate. Now remember, at this point, they have stopped shooting any merchant ships. This guy wants to go back and sink 600,000 tons a month. We move ahead to March. Three months later, March 24th, the SS Su- Sussex, which is a passenger steamer going across from uh, England to France and the, the English Channel, gets torpedoed, 80 casualties, handful of Americans, a couple of them died. The U-boat captain said, hey, I thought it was a mine-laying ship. No, it wasn't a mine-laying ship. It was a ferry boat. And this really becomes the, the breaking point for the United States because, you know, the, the diplomatic relations uh, pretty much break off. We move to January of 1917. Now, this is the, the Sussex incident was in March. So we moved to the beginning of the next year. And after all this negotiation and, and supposed diplomatic work, uh, Germany announces that unrestricted submarine warfare is opened back up. And their situation in the war was looking pretty grim. They knew they needed to do something. And this was uh, the last-ditch effort that they thought would save their war effort. The first month, February of 1917, they sunk 500,000 tons of ships. The next month, 860,000 tons of ships. The next month, 600,000 tons, then 600,000 tons, then 600,000 tons, then 700,000 tons. In that entire time frame, they only lost nine submarines. This is 1917 I speak of. It is unbelievable to think of the scope and the scale of the destruction wrought by German U-boats during World War I. It is almost beyond compare. Think of it this way. One third of all the pass or I'm sorry, one third of all the merchant vessels in the world 
or sunk over the course of World War I. One-third of all the merchant vessels in the world were sunk over the course of World War I. How wild is that? So we painted a very grim picture here so far. We painted a picture of a country, i.e. England, that is surrounded by submarines, that is having hundreds of thousands of tons of shipping, of vital supplies of food and of materials and of resources coming to their country, sunk every month. They have a navy that is so intimidating, no one will fight them face-to-face, but they have an enemy that they have no response for. Yes, England had some submarines. They were far inferior to the German submarines. They had no real direct plan on what to do with surface ships against submarines, and it was looking pretty scary for the people of England. They were trying to come up with basically any ideas that they could, and one of the ideas that they cooked up were for the Q-ships. And we'll get to that in a couple of minutes, but first we need to really understand the enemy here, and the enemy, I'm talking about German submarines. So, instead of taking a deep dive into the Q-ships right now, Let's take the formative deep dive, see what I did there, into the German U-boat. Let's discover who the real enemy was mechanically in this story. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more. So these machines that were ravaging and terrorizing the country of England and the Germans were relying on really to to try to turn the tide for them in, in one major aspect of the war, which was the war, of course, being fought on the oceans, were incredible feats of engineering for their day and they've laid the foundation for the submarines that we have now we're talking submarines now that will go for months at a time never seeing the light of day they can effectively travel underneath the ocean waves for an entire trans-global trip if they wanted to and often do they'll go under the polar ice caps they'll do incredible things that uh, maybe even have capabilities that most aren't even kind of allowed to, to the public for knowledge. So the submarines of World War I were not these machines at all. They were the, the primordial kind of thing that climbed out of the ooze that has led us to these machines, but they were, you know, amoebas as compared to the fully developed, you know, awesomeness that is a, a modern submarine. But let's talk about why they were effective, how they were used, and what they were actually capable of doing. The first thing we're going to talk about is how they were built. And, of course, uh, German shipyards, uh, all of German engineering, as we know, uh, whether we're talking about automobiles, whether we're talking about uh, war material, Germany has always had a a very high standard of of engineering. It's something that they continue to pride themselves on today. They're an industrial-based economy. They make a lot of stuff there. And such is the... um, such is the case and has been for 100 plus years. So the company Krupp, which if you're familiar with uh, with German history or familiar with World War One or Two history, Krupp was like the major armor, if you will, of the entire uh, war efforts of the country, both in World War One and Two. So Krupp was um, 
a driving force behind the design and construction of these submarines. And when we talk about the evolution of these things, um, the first generation, the let's call it the first generation of World War One submarines. They were, they went through several revisions over the course of the war. Germany had been building subs for about eight to ten years before the world bro- the war broke out, so they had a fair amount of experience in their construction. But a typical German submarine, one uh, we'll pick out a model known as U-14. They're all very adventurously named basically in their order of construction. U being Undersee-Boat. That is their kind of uh, my bad German accent there, but that's uh, what the U stood for. And U-14 was uh, built in 1911, was launched in 1912. This was a 500-ton submarine. It's 190 feet long. It's 20 feet wide. It was about 20 feet tall. It used two 700-horsepower diesel engines and two 1,000-horsepower electric motors. It was able to travel at 14.8 knots on the surface of the ocean. It was able to travel 11 knots of speed under the waves. It had a max diving depth of 160 feet, and it was manned by four officers and 25 sailors. Its armaments, very simple. Had four torpedo tubes, carried six torpedoes, and had a deck gun on it. So, we have to kind of break down some of those facts. First one is the fact that um, this is a fairly large vessel, 190 feet long. We talk about the diesel engines and the electric engines. And the diesel-electric combination um, was something that uh, really was advanced for the time. Um, it is, you know, the hybrid. The fa- We always talk about hybrids and electric cars, of course, are permeating this, the world now in 2021. But back then in 1911, when you had the ability to run your diesel engines and then go under the surface of the waves, use electric power, and then resurface and um, recharge your batteries with the diesel engines. It was a very innovative system. Now, I mentioned the fact that this uh, submarine was able to dive to about 160 feet, which is almost comical by today's standards, right? 160 feet is like almost the height of a modern submarine in some respect. But back then, um, the construction was not there to deal with, of course, the, the pressures that mount exponentially as you go deeper and deeper into the water. So that's one of the things to think about when we start talking about some of these engagements and the sinkings is that, you know, 160 feet is is not that deep in a world now where we have submarines capable of literally trolling the bottom of the ocean. 160 feet is kind of funny. And I mentioned the fact that they would have to surface to charge their batteries. So how long could a World War One German submarine stay submerged? Two hours. Think of that for a second. These things could only stay under the water for two hours. And it wasn't because of lack of oxygen for the crew. It was because they only had that much battery power to run all the systems on the vessel and then power it. Took a lot of battery power. And to, to, to move 2,000 horsepower electric motors, which can you even imagine the size of those things? It's incredible. A lot of the weight of these submarines, that 508-ton weight of U-14, at least 100 tons of it was actually the batteries that were down in the keel of the ship. These were massive lead-acid batteries that were in huge cells, and they you know, they would basically use the diesel engines as a giant, a giant alternator, a giant battery charger on the surface, and then they would go silent running on the electric motors underneath the waves using the batteries. We'll talk about some of the downsides of having huge amounts of lead-acid batteries in a submarine in a little while. 
So now you know they can only stay under the water for two hours, which is kind of an interesting development, right? Because you think, oh, these things just go out there and never come up again. Wrong. They are really submersible ships, as, as opposed to a submarine that we talk about today that will spend all this time underwater. In World War One, these were really submersible ships. Yes, they could fully submerge themselves in water, but eventually, and not that far down after going underwater, you had to come back up again to charge the batteries. Then we talk about the armaments. And I mentioned they have four torpedo tubes. Well, these things only carried about six torpedoes. And even later in the war, the the number of torpedoes that the submarine would carry didn't change that much. So the deck gun, which was typically a three and a half inch by the end of the war, like a four inch gun on the deck, so a big gun, um, was the primary weapon of the submarine. The torpedoes needed to be used so sparingly. You could not waste torpedoes on low-value targets. If you had a torpedo in the tube and you only had six of them and you're going to be on patrol for several weeks, you got to make sure when you shoot that thing, one, you're going to hit something, and two, you're going to hit something worth shooting it at. But the deck gun, they would carry sometimes 170, sometimes 200 rounds of ammunition for the deck gun. And you can do a lot of damage with a four-inch gun. Again, we think about battleships and we think about things that have these huge, you know, 18-inch guns or whatnot. But when you talk about actually shooting at another vessel, trying to sink it, especially one that isn't armed, like these merchant ships that the U-boats are attacking, that four-inch deck gun can certainly get the job done in a hurry. The other thing that these submarines carried was a lot of dynamite. And they carried a lot of dynamite because when they would stop these merchant ships, rather than waste four-inch rounds out of the deck gun, rather than waste a submarine, if they could get the crew to abandon ship, which usually wasn't that tough to do, they would then board the ship, stuff it full of dynamite, and they would sink a lot of ships by dynamiting them. They would board and blow up the ship. So there's all different kinds of ways these submarines were getting the job done, but that was uh, kind of the th- the primary ones. Now, by the end of the war, we moved to a submarine uh, U-53, we'll use as an example. This is one of the later subs. They had grown. This was now a 700-ton vessel instead of a 500-ton vessel. It's about 20 feet longer. It had two 2,400-horsepower diesel engines and two 1,200-horsepower electric motors. It could travel about 18 knots on the surface. And because of its increased size, it actually slowed down a little bit. 9.1 knots submerged. By the end of World War I, German submarines had a range of 11,000 miles. Think of that. Late teens, you have 11,000 miles of range. And again, we go back to what do you use your torpedoes on? Because this thing was only going to carry about seven. But now it had two deck guns. So you've you've made the thing more valuable with the addition, I mean, I should say more dangerous with the addition of that second deck gun. You really haven't increased the torpedo count at all. But uh, again, the advancements are the size, the speed, the horsepower, maneuverability, of course, and then the range is just unbelievable at 11,000 miles. And so we mentioned the batteries before as well. Let's talk a little bit about the danger of having lead-acid batteries inside your submarine. The biggest danger came from chlorine gas because what would happen if there was a leak 
if there was a breach of the hull in any way, if, if somebody attacked you and shot holes in your submarine and all of a sudden started taking on water and it got to the batteries, they would begin to release chlorine gas. And it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out that in a confined space with 30 individuals, uh, chlorine gas is not going to do anybody any favors. There were many, many, many submariners, both in World War I and World War II, that were effectively gassed to death inside their own subs after the hull was compromised or after a problem. There is a very famous story from World War II of a leaking toilet that ended up destroying a submarine and killing everybody on board because the leak was happening into the battery area, gas release, and the problems uh, got exponentially worse from there. So the reason that the the batteries were in the keel of the boat, obviously you want to have all that weight down bottom for stability, but also they were kind of in a in as much a, of a protective cocoon as they could be. And the risk and danger of that chlorine gas escape was uh, was big and certainly was one of the uh, many horrifying ways you could uh, you could lose your life inside a, a U-boat at this time in history. These U-boats would stay out for several weeks on end. They would go out on you know their patrols. They would have a certain section of the ocean that they were kind of responsible for, and they would just kind of work it like a grid. They would have an area, and that would be kind of their zone, and they were responsible for disrupting, sinking, stopping, checking, whatever, any vessels that they could find. And it didn't matter what it looked like or what it was. This was unrestricted submarine warfare, which meant if it was moving and you could shoot at it, go for it. The last thing I want to talk about with regard to the U-boats specifically is tactics, because tactics, fighting tactics, are going to become a very important part of this discussion when we talk about the British Q-ships engaging against these U-boats. How does a three-masted schooner sink a U-boat? Because it happened. I'm going to tell you about it. How does a, a two-masted, 70-foot-long fishing smack, a little tiny sailboat, sink a U-boat? It happened. I'm going to tell you about that, too. The way it happened is because of the tactics used by the U-boats at the time. They were very limited in what they could do. Again, we talked about the ammunition limitations. That was a huge one. And then there are other limitations. Visibility, you don't have sonar, you don't have radar, you basically have a periscope. And so these U-boats really did act a lot more like a surface ship than what we would expect a submarine to act like. We cannot really use any of the modern context of how submarines just kind of sneak around and then they use their awesome technology to line up a ship and you never see the submarine and he just shoots off his torpedo and that's it and the ship sinks and off he goes to the next one. That was not how it worked here. I mean, maybe in very rare occasions when a submarine uh, commander would get lucky, it would work like that. But really, they would use the deck gun for the majority of their engagements. So what would happen is the submarine would spot something way off in the distance. They would submerge, and they would approach their target underwater. Periscope up, kind of looking around, seeing what they needed to see. They would then appear and attack the target on the surface, typically. Unless it was a very high-value, large ship, unless it was a very dangerous ship to attack, a warship, for instance, they would come to the surface and they would make their attack with the deck gun. They could start shooting from 10,000 yards away. Usually, engagements would take place four to 5,000 yards of distance. And you're on the ocean. You're shooting this big deck gun. The submarine's bobbing and weaving. 
because of the waves. So accuracy is not exactly an easy thing to come by out here. The gunners on the U-boats and the gunners on the Q-ships were absolutely talented and fearless and brave, and obviously they sunk a lot of stuff, so no one was really bad at this, but it was not as easy as you might, you might think, just kind of rolling up, popping up out of the ocean and pumping some rounds into a defenseless merchant ship. It was pretty tough. And, you know, the, the guns on the U-boats, the big four-inch guns, were certainly capable of, of damaging and or sinking a merchant ship from those huge distances. But there are a lot of instances in the Q-ship the Q history, the Q-ship U-boat history, where these battles are being fought at like a distance of 300 yards or 400 yards or sometimes 50 yards. So like imagine not even at the end of your driveway you're standing on one end of your driveway, somebody else is standing on the other with a pair of four-inch guns aimed at each other, and really the only person that's going to get away from this is the guy who shoots first and most accurately. We'll get into all that because it just really gets more fascinating as we go along. I mentioned torpedoes and how these these ships only carried a small handful of them. They were very advanced for their time. They were very expensive. They were very heavy. They were not altogether that accurate. They used, believe it or not, a four-cylinder engine with batteries. So when they shot a torpedo off in this in World War One time frame, the torpedo was kind of skimming along the surface, and it was putting up a, a, a trail behind it. And that's how that's how ships would spot these torpedoes because you would see the trail coming, and you would yell to your your captain, and then he would heave ho the ship one direction or the other, or in some cases, as we'll learn, steer into it on purpose. But the submarines shooting the torpedoes, it was really a point-and-shoot type of exercise. Once you let that thing out of the tube, it was going in whatever straight line that you aimed it in. And so the range of a torpedo back then, the long range was like 3,000 yards. They would move along at like 35 knots, which was really flying for the time. And uh, that was pretty much the name of the game. If you were a zigzagging captain... You could probably zigzag your way away from it because as that uh, as that torpedo was traveling again in a, in a basically a dead straight line and your ship was moving back and forth, it was probably going to miss you. And at the start of World War One, and really into the first couple of years, there was no such thing as a depth charge. If you're unfamiliar with the de- what a depth charge is, it's one of the ways that you can fight against a submarine from a surface ship. You lob what is basically a bomb into the water it sinks to a predetermined depth and then explodes. They're highly effective, especially if you get it right. So at the beginning of the war, the the, the British didn't even have a, a depth charge so much as to, uh, to fight these U-boats with. So now you understand what a German U-boat is, what its capabilities are, what its capabilities aren't, and how they were being used to attack all these merchant ships. It is, uh, it is kind of the schoolyard bully story. When a U-boat would roll up on a merchant ship full of, in some cases, livestock or hay bales or lumber, it wasn't much of a fair fight. That merchant ship typically would abandon very quickly. The guys would literally jump off the side, lower the lifeboats, and get the hell out of there. And the U-boat captain could pretty much do as he pleased, if he was a nice guy. If he wasn't a nice guy... He didn't give anybody a chance to do anything. He just popped up and sunk the thing with everybody on board and didn't give anybody a chance to even attempt to escape. This is one of the most horrifying things in the world. 
Can you imagine just being a merchant sailor at that point, minding your business, hauling stuff back and forth across the ocean, knowing that at any moment something may just appear off your left, your right, your front, or your back with the intention of sending you to the bottom of the ocean? That's exactly what the scene was from 1914 well into and through most of World War I. Okay, we've established the U-boats, we've established the tactics, we've established the reasons why Germany is trying to choke England out and why the only option they think they have is unrestricted submarine warfare. Now let's talk about the British side of this discussion, because here is where we get to the invention of the Q-ship, its brilliance, its execution, and frankly, the desperate reasons why this entire program was brought up, some of the great history behind it, the people, the machines, and the movers of the Q-Ship Battle start now. So I know there was a lot of context leading up to this point. Now they're actually going to start talking about the very subject of this show, the Q-Ships of World War I, but you need to know all that other stuff in order for this part to make any sense. So an interesting name pops up right from the beginning when we talk about the development of Q-Ships by the British Navy and that name. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, not only uh, an incredible force of leadership in that country during World War II, but at this time in his life, he was in government and he was uh, very much into the Navy, so to speak. He was uh, involved in the naval operations of England from a you know political governmental standpoint for many, many years. And so in 1914, it is basically Churchill who first sends some communication um, it says, hey, uh, maybe we should start arming some of our merchant vessels here because, again, when we look at Germany's campaign, it was unrestricted submarine warfare early, and then there was no submarine warfare on merchant ships as the government was trying to keep the U.S. out of the war, and then it goes back to unrestricted submarine warfare later on. So at this point in 1914, Churchill's saying, uh, hey, maybe we should arm some of these fishing trawlers and arm you know, some of these unsuspecting ships that we can maybe lure some of these German submarines into a trap when they try to attack them. And Admiral John Jellicoe is the kind of credited as championing the idea of taking this suggestion from Winston Churchill and turning it into much more than that. It was in July of 1915 that Jellicoe started to put together um, this interesting approach of building Q-ships or armed merchant ships that would be used, as the Germans would call them, as trap ships. And they would hunt submarines. They would place themselves intentionally in danger, looking unassuming, and then at the last moment deliver what they hoped would be a sucker punch blow and sink some of these U-boats. Interestingly enough, this effort had to have kept, had to have been, and was on purpose, kept entirely secret. So there was no, um, let's call it, there was no organized universal effort on Q-ships. So there was no single officer ever put in charge of developing a Q-ship fleet. There was no hierarchy of command inside the Q-ship world. It was the empowerment of admirals and their local commands being told to do this and to do it by any means necessary. And what the brilliance of that strategy was is you did not end up with uniformity in any of these, and we're going to talk a lot about different uh, different styles of Q-ships. So if one admiral, admiral I should say, happened to be overseeing an area where uh, there was a large fishing fleet, then his Q-ships would basically be built out of fishing trawlers or in some in some cases, uh, small fishing sailing ships. If there was an admiral that had a lot of 
um, area where there was a lot of transport of, say, coal or other bulk materials, uh, many of his Q ships would be built from steamers or from transport ships or from other unassuming-looking vessels. And so the admirals, the local command level, not only found the ships to modify, they staffed them, they upfitted them, and it was, again, this kind of interesting study in almost you know chaos theory where if you give 100 people the same job and tell them to just do it and don't tell them how to do it, you're going to get 100 different results, and some of them very good and some of them obviously not so great. Where did the name Q-ship come from? Well, most of these ships were based in uh, a place called Queenstown, Ireland. That's where the, the port where many of these Q-ships kind of came and went from was um, was Queenstown, Ireland. So hence the name Q-ships. Some people call them Q-ships because they believe that they were supposed to be you know, Queen's ships, which is inaccurate. Uh, it really is based off of the Queenstown, Ireland connection. And Sir, Tom, Sir Admiral Lewis Bailey, B-A-Y-L-Y, Bailey was uh, another of these great, great champions of this style of uh, unconventional, shall we call it, asymmetrical style naval attack vessel. How about the crews? How about the captains of the actual vessels themselves? Well, the crews were given hazard pay, and they were paid a bounty, and they were promised a bounty if they were to sink a U-boat, the crew would get a bounty of a thousand pounds to split between them. And what is very interestingly, very interesting is the fact that a lot of times, and we'll talk about why, the, the Q ships were basically double staffed. They were double crewed. You would have the normal merchant marine crew on there, the people that were normally, you know, hauling wood or bricks or hams or whatever um, on the ocean. And then you would also have the uh, the sailors, the actual combat, you know, naval marine, or I should say the military sailors on these on these ships. And in order to keep everything under wraps, in order to everything keep everything kind of uh, the ruse going, nobody could wear a uniform. So this, you know, the British Navy, uh, long known, long respected, long feared, uh, but certainly one of the most rigid tradition following um stratified structured uh every button is perfect everything's polished everything shined outfits on the planet was suddenly telling some of their bravest sailors that they couldn't even put on a uniform and they had to wear secondhand clothes they would give them a small allowance the guys that were assigned to these q ships they would give them a small allowance to go out and buy used clothes in order to look like a tattered tramp steamer crew member pretty pretty interesting so the, it was Admiral Stanley Colville that helped to develop some of the tactics that we're going to talk about as well because there was a, a definite set of tactics developed by Q-ship crews and by military leadership that they followed, which proved to be highly effective. So what would make the ideal Q-ship? When we talk about them you know, using all different types of boats to create these things, what is the bait? What is the thing that they would need to really try to draw the attention of these submarine captains the ideal q-ship was big enough for guns meaning big enough to put a, a four inch cannon a four inch uh, you know style field gun on there basically the same style of weapon that the u-boat would have to shoot at the q-ship the q-ship would have about the same thing to shoot back at them and a ship that was too small for a u-boat to waste torpedoes on so again the torpedoes being such a 
precious commodity. You don't want to use those on a, you know, we're going to use that on a fishing trawler. So you're going to be forced to fight a surface fight with that fishing trawler. You're going to come to the surface and use your deck gun, which is exactly what the British needed these U-boats to do in order for them to engage. And so 200 tons to 4,000 tons was really the range of ships used. The 4,000-ton ships would be like a coal transport. That would be one of the biggest examples of a Q-ship. 4,000 tons is a pretty good-sized ship. And that was definitely on the end of uh, hit it with a torpedo-sized ship. The 200-tonners, we'll talk about them. They were very, very small. Uh, 200 tons is obviously a, a lot of weight if we're talking about gold, but when we're talking about ships, 200 tons is, is not much. Uh, a style of ship called an island tramp was kind of the ideal Q-ship, and, and what an island tramp was is a tramp steamer. A tramp steamer is just, as you can imagine, kind of like the you know box truck of the seas. This mid-sized cargo-carrying vessel that had no... Um, definitive home a tramp steamer was one that did not have a designated home port it would just go from place to place it would pick up work get assigned a task it would you know let's say it sailed from the Caribbean to England then it would take another job and sail from England to New York and then take another job and sail from New York to Cuba and then you know so on and so forth it just they never stopped moving or hauling stuff around they would go about 10 knots wide open throttle and because they were of a good size and because they were designed to carry or cover long distances with cargo, they could stay out um, on the ocean a long time, which would be an important part of the Q-ship attack plan because the more time you're out there, the more opportunity you're going to have to engage with U-boats. And finally, they were innocent looking. There was nothing about a, a steamer, an island-style steamer or anything else that made anybody especially in 1915, look at it and think, ooh, maybe that thing's going to attack me. It just looked like a helpless, lumbering, yet another just kind of hunk of steel on the ocean. So what did they do to make a ship like an island tramp actually a weapon of war? They did stuff, if you ever watched the A-Team as a kid, I used to love the A-Team because everybody did, B.A. Baracus and, and the rest of the crew. They would always build something cool. You know, they'd modify something or... They do something per episode that was always kind of neat to surprise the bad guys. That's exactly what what the the Navy of England did with Q ships. So they would take these steamers, whether it was a steamer or a fishing vessel or whatever, and they would add very light armor protection. The reality is, you cannot you know just uh, armor an entire ship, especially one that was never designed for it, and do so in a in a fairly hidden manner. It would stick out very readily. So they would add um, subtle armor plating and stuff to, to parts of the ship. And most of that was to prevent things like shrapnel. A direct hit, the armor they're adding isn't going to do anything, but it's going to, you know, it's going to help deflect um, uh, shrapnel or other things if there is an, an indirect, uh, indirect hit, if you will. But they would add false decks. They would add false structures on top of the ship, and that's where they would hide the guns. They would add these flaps to the side of the hull, where you're sitting there and it just looks like everything's sealed up and then whammo, the sides could drop down like an old school ship and there's a there's a four-inch gun pointing at you. Um, they had disappearing gun mounts, so the gun would be mounted low and when they needed it, it would spring up over uh, onto the deck and they could, they could start firing. They had 
again, uh, uh, hinged gunwales they would put front and back. They built structures where it looked like it was lifeboats, but really underneath those lifeboats was uh, a four-inch gun, or there was four-inch guns on both ends of the ship, and they had, you know, these little, what looked to be little just structures on the deck. Nothing looked out of place, and it would take about 10 seconds in a lot of cases for that thing to go from a very innocuous-looking steamer to all of a sudden a armed dangerous ship that was now trying to sink a submarine and it was trying to sink the submarine with trained gunners and sailors on it and we're going to go through the whole procedure of kind of the four ways that submarines engaged these q ships and how they worked but understand it would be it would be like you're just walking down the street and some guy goes by in a station wagon and all of a sudden that station wagon turns into a sherman tank is really what the equivalent of a Q ship is on the seas. And it's a, it's a really cool idea. And it's a really cool thing to think about that. These guys were on this boat that only they knew was actually capable and willing and wanting to be attacked and then attacked back at a German U boat, even though it looked like their ship was just a normal run of the mill kind of uh, steamer. I mean, just a, a very run of the mill everyday looking ship so you had different styles of guns used on these they had one called a 12 pounder it was called a 12 pounder because each shell weighed 12 pounds uh, they had six and three pounder guns as well the the four inch guns as i mentioned uh pretty much all of these ships would have had a good complement of lewis and maxim machine guns lots of small arms depth charges later on in the war would become a thing and even later on they would outfit these uh q ships with torpedo tubes so if you can think of it, by the time we get to 1917, not only do these things have guns on the decks and sometimes hidden below the decks, but they also have the ability to shoot torpedoes at submarines. And if you thought a submarine torpedo attack was inaccurate, boy, the Q-ship submarine or the Q-ship torpedo attack uh, is not going to impress you any more than that. So they, other than the guns, they would also modify the ships in other ways. For instance, they would add trap doors. Um, and all kinds of different passages that didn't exist inside the ship that were hidden from view. The reason they would do this is because you needed to get the crew in place immediately to get yourself ready to fight. So rather than have to run through the normal up and down stairs and around things and you know the taking the long way home, so to speak, if the captain gave the order to man the guns, people had trap doors that were right next to the firing positions where they could basically run up a ladder and pop up and be ready to go nearly instantaneously. And the other thing it did with the different passages and ways through the middle of the ship was it kept from view from this, the U-boat captain who was watching your ship on his periscope. It hid from their view the fact that there was way too many guys on this boat. You needed to do everything possible to not arise suspicion for this plan to work. Everything needed to be done in such a manner as to not spook the U-boat captain. So if that U-boat captain had looked in his periscope and said, man, there's 20 guys in the deck right now. There should only be 10 guys on that ship total. He knows that something's going on. And one of two things would happen. One, he would either try to torpedo you because now he figured out that you're a military boat and now you're a high-value target. Or two, he would just turn tail and run away. Both of those things are negatives for the Q-ship crew, for the Q-ship captain, and for the ability of the Q-ship to actually get the job done. They would also do things to the structure of the ship to help it in the event it was attacked and shot at, which all these things basically were. So they would make watertight compartments or they would seal off different compartments 
meaning if you had a big open hold in the center of your ship, if you're a coal-carrying ship, or supposed to be one, and the entire center of your your vessel is just this one giant open cavern that normally had coal in it, they would make some weld-in steel plates, they would weld-in iron plates, do whatever they had to do to make uh, watertight compartments out of that. So instead of taking one torpedo to the center of the ship and then sinking because the whole thing filled up with water, you're able to seal it off into smaller areas. So if you get shot in one location, maybe it just gets contained to that area and doesn't sink the entire ship. Other things that were done, pretty much every Q ship that went out there in their cargo holds, whether they were sealed or open, would be filled with barrels, would be filled with lumber, would be filled with cork, would be filled with any sort of buoyant uh, material they could find. Why? Because when they took took a submarine shot, or rather took a torpedo shot, or they took a deck gun round, they didn't sink. Those things would, would act as buoyancy to help these Q ships survive being attacked, and it worked really well. And it's a very interesting thing to think about. Whoever came up with that concept is brilliant, but they would, again, make the ship as buoyant as possible by adding the wood, the cork, the barrels, the whatever they could find that would float. They'd stuff it all on the bottom, and then it would almost act like a... I want to say like a self-sealing bladder because it never would seal the hull, but it would help float the ship if it was taking on water. Other interesting things that were done. A lot of these had uh, ships had periscopes that would be hidden. Why would the ship have a periscope? Just so you can get an elevated view. You can see a larger area. They would also have wireless communication, and they would hide the antennas in very creative ways in these ships. Sometimes on a three-masted sailing ship, you would hide it as a... Um, you would hide it kind of up one of the masts. Other places, they just kind of ran the wire as it looked like a stay cable between a pair of masts. I mean, it was really amazing the level of um, the level of deception that they went to in order to make this work. Finally, the most obvious thing they would do is they would fly flags of different countries on these boats. None of no Q ship ever went out with an English flag on it. Because that was an invitation for, um, for a long, you know, protracted fight. You wanted to have this thing hidden until you drew the Q- the U-boat into your trap. You did not want the U-boat captain to go, ha, that's an English ship, let's go get it. You wanted to fool them. So they never, ever flew English colors coming out of port. They always flew colors from a neutral nation, whether that was uh, the Dutch flag, whether it was the United States flag or the Canadian flag or whoever. Whatever neutral countries there were, those were the country, the flags that were flown. They would change the names of these ships very often. They would go to port and repaint the side of the ship with a new name. And they would use real ships' names because at this time in history, there was a, uh, and it still is, it's a public ship registry. And so anybody, including the Germans, would have access to this book. So if you, pay, if you named your ship the you know, SS, uh, SS Brian Loans, and there was no SS Brian loans in the ship register, they knew that uh, something was fishy. If they did know that there was one of those, in the, if they did see there was one in the, in the register, that at least kind of helped to corroborate the ruse you're trying to pull. It helped to legitimize your, your deception. And outside of changing the name and outside of doing different things about, you know, flying the flag, they would paint uh, different, if the accents on the ship's funnels were red, all of a sudden they might be gold, all of a sudden they might be white. It was not uncommon for these boats, these ships, to be changing names like on the monthly. They did not want to be 
they did not want to be made as uh, as we'd say I guess they did not want to be discovered so that's one of the ways you can just keep keep up changing your look even in very mild ways there is also the idea of the flag that I mentioned where they would have these neutral colors up now when they would get involved with a u-boat at the very last second before they dropped the before they dropped the coverings and started firing the guns literally the last thing they would do was they would drop the flag and they would fly the white British naval ensign or the the British naval basically battle flag and once they flew that flag they were now no longer breaking the rules of of war quote unquote by attacking back at the submarine they became a combatant vessel at that moment but they had to be flying that flag if they didn't put the flag up before they shot they would have been in violation of you know the some of these prize not necessarily the prize rules but the rules of engagement so to speak so imagine that, like the last thing you do, you got the U-boat and he's waiting there and he's, he thinks he's going to take you down, but you know you got another thing in mind. And at the last second, you hoist the flag, you drop your, you drop your different coverings and you just start firing away. It's an amazing thing to think about. And it, and it goes back to how important the captain and the crew were for this to actually work. You had to be so brave to do this you were basically on a suicide mission in the first place you were on a ship meaning the cube the q ship you're on a a ship that is not at all defensively equipped to deal with everything a a u-boat can throw at you and frankly most of these were like if you take a couple of good shots with that with that four inch gun you're in big trouble if you take a torpedo every one of these you know effectively every one of these q ships is going to just go down to the bottom of the sea but you're the captain and the crew. You cannot engage this enemy until they are almost on top of you, which meant that you had to sit there and wait as they fired at you and as they shot torpedoes at you and as they lobbed shells at your ship, a lot of times hitting your ship multiple times before you could fire back. You were just laying there praying that when they did hit the ship, it wasn't going to sink it and that they would get close enough for you to attack. And the amount of courage, self-control, and training this took is just unbelievable. And, you know, the captains at first, they were handpicked by the uh, by the British Navy. Um, then there were some volunteers. And, you know, as the war got later on, a lot of the Q-ship captains were actually retired kind of merchant marine skippers. Um, they were guys that had been retired, uh, you know, naval um, captains before. So there was a load of experience here, both in the gunnery side and the leadership side, that made this... Um, an interesting and effective way to, 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 to attack the enemy as well. So as a final, you know, kind of uh, tribute here, but you had to be a, a person of what I would call independent character in order to be a successful Q-ship captain because you had to be able to basically coach your team into saying, listen, we're going to be out here for months on end, and for maybe every one of those days we won't see a single U-boat, and then we will see one. And if it's been three weeks of us just driving around the ocean doing nothing and then we have to spring into action in 10 seconds, you have to be ready for it. And they so often were ready for it. And oh, by the way, when we do get ready to attack this enemy, we're going to let him shoot at us for a while first. We're going to let that happen. So you just hang out. Don't do anything. We're going to take a couple of shots here. Hopefully none of them fatal. And then uh, when we get where we want them, we'll start fighting back. The crews dressed and talked and walked and lived as merchant marine sales, uh, sailors. 
that was what they had to look like. It's what they had to do. Again, if a German U-boat captain looks through his periscope and he sees people in British naval uniforms on the deck, it's over, Johnny. He's, he's going to open up on you with everything he's got. If he looks and sees people in tattered clothes that are dirty and look, you know, smelly looking and scraggly looking that are merchant marine sailors that have been out for a month, he thinks he's got you right where he wants you. No uniforms. They had the secondhand clothes. And they all had to have the same story as well because there were occasions where um, these Q-ships would be sunk and the, the Germans would take a prisoner or two or three or four or five or whatever, or they'd be questioned at a port and they'd have to all have the same story. The secrecy is astonishing. Think of this. Think of this fleet of over a hundred, up to up to 200 Q-ships that were built over the course of the war, every one of them a secret, every crew member, every person aboard having to know what the kind of fake story of the boat was. So when they went into a port, someone says, what are you doing here? They don't say, oh, we're a Q-ship. We're, we're hunting for submarines. They say, oh, no, we're delivering whatever fake cargo they say they have, and everybody has to be on the same page because you got to keep this a secret. And it's 1916, 1915. It's amazing. There was a very big problem for the crews, though, when they went into port. And as we know, sailors, when they spend all that time on the ocean, they like to get into port and blow off some steam, and it's not exactly, you know, uh, child book, you know, or kids book uh, cleanliness of, of living going on here. This is, uh, you know, they're hitting the bars, they're hitting the pubs, they're hitting the flop houses, they're hitting the brothels, they're hitting pretty much everywhere that they can to get their uh, vices handled. When you come off a merchant ship and go into port during a war, guess what the girls think? The girls think that you're a coward. And they so much as told these guys that. And they told them it so much. They would actually put white feathers in the pockets of merchant sailors during the war as a sign that they were a, a coward, that you were cowardly, you weren't fighting, you were sailing around your boat delivering carrots or whatever it was you were doing. So it got to be such a big problem, and it happened so often that enough of the crews complained to their captains that the captains went to the admirals, the admirals went to the top of the British naval leadership and said we got to do something for these guys because it's hurting morale so they made these little badges and when when these sailors were in port they could in their street clothes put these little badges on that basically said that they were in the service of the queen helping with the war effort and that helped them apparently you know smooth things out with the girls at the bars and the brothels and the flop houses and wherever else they were kind of a really funny wild element to this story that it was so well hidden the guys are so well-trained to their own detriment, they couldn't even enjoy themselves on shore leave until the naval uh, leadership, probably with the teeth gritting down to the gums, had to step up and help them out with those badges. The tactics of a Q-ship. There really weren't any in terms of their patrols. They would go out and basically just drive up and down, sail up and down the trade routes on the ocean. Ireland, Britain, Scotland, France, you know, the Mediterranean that area and all they were doing was hunting just like the u-boats were hunting for the merchant ships the q ships were hunting for the u-boats and the u-boats were a lot harder to find than the merchant ships were there are lots of great stories of q ships that went out for a month two months three months and never fired a shot 
There are other great stories of Q-ships that were out there for a day and were already engaged in multiple battles. On a timeline, by 1917, the Q-ship has pretty much been used up in terms of an effective weapon. And we're going to get into the fact that they may not have been that effective anyway, but we're going to talk about that in a while. So by 1917, uh, so much has happened. So many battles have happened. The Germans have become smarter at spotting these. They have figured out ways to determine who was what, what was where, and what they should attack and what they shouldn't. So by 17, really the heyday of the Q-ship is, is late 14 through 20 or through 1916. So 1914 to 16, that two-year stretch is really kind of the, the, the Q-ship peak, if you will. So knowing that now about the Q-ships and kind of how they came to be, what they were, what the intention was, we really need to talk about how they actually did their job. Like what was the physical requirements of actually winning some of these fights or losing some of these fights? How does a steamer with a couple of guns on it compete with one of the most advanced weapons of war the world has ever seen? So there are really four different ways that a a Q-ship would do its job. And the four different methods, you have Q-ship spots the U-boat. You have U-boat is being fired on by Q-ship. U-boat tries to torpedo the Q-ship or the U-boat hits with a torpedo on the Q-ship. And I want to walk through all four of these scenarios because the ways that the captain would handle them were all different. So the initial response of a a Q-ship to a U-boat really would determine whether or not it had any fighting chance to survive or if its crew would be able to actually do their job. So, scenario one. The Q-ship captain or the lookout spots a U-boat in the distance. The spotter would see the U-boat, would yell to the captain. The captain would basically uh, maintain course like absolutely nothing was happening. Would cruise down through the ocean would make no mention, wouldn't look over his shoulder, would pretend as though he had no idea that anything was going wrong around him. They would maintain position. The crew would keep their eyes open for the torpedo trails. That would be a big one. And if they needed to make any evasive maneuvers, they would. And again, it was not that difficult to a, to avoid a torpedo you could see coming from a distance. You could you throw the ship into a turn left or right, and typically that torpedo is going to miss you. Once you know that there is a U-boat in the area, you can become hypervigilant looking for the trails, get the information to the bridge, and then get the course corrected. So when this was going on, the captain now understands that he is in the presence of a U-boat, and now he kind of puts his his deception plan in order. And this is the stuff you got to love about Q-ships. So let's say he just gently avoids the torpedo in a nonchalant way, turns the boat a couple of degrees, torpedo misses, Again, the U-boat captain is not suspecting anything. What he's going to do next, he's going to slow down. And he's going to slow down because that's going to let the U-boat catch up to him. And he's not going to slow down a ton. He's just gradually going to back off the speed a little bit. A couple of knots here or there. U-boat captain maybe perceiving the fact that he's catching up a little bit. When that U-boat gets to within about five to 600 yards, he, the captain is going to cue what is known as the panic party. The panic party is that group of merchant marine sailors. Remember, on our Q-ship, we have our merchant marine sailors that are normally on one of these boats, and we have our naval sailors that are ready to actually fight. When the captain cues the panic party, 
these guys literally get up and it's like an act. It is actually like it's like acting. They would run up on the deck. They would run around. They'd bump into each other. They would pretend to be in an utter panic and they would lower the lifeboats. They would lower one. They would lower both. Both. However many they had, they would start lowering the boats as they're lowering the boats and getting in the water and paddling away. The U-boat captain is thinking to himself, I got him now, baby. They're abandoning ship. I'm, this is going to be easy. I'm going to line it up, and I'm going to sink this thing. He's not going to waste any more torpedoes. He's going to watch that lifeboat get rowed away or start to get rowed away. He's going to surface, and he's going to get ready to blast this thing with his deck gun. Unfortunately for the U-boat captain, what he doesn't know is that the deck of that ship is still very much full of people. They're hidden from his sight, and they are hidden with their guns. And as soon as that U-boat would pop out of the water, they would fly the white ensign, they would pull the they would pull the uh, gun coverings off, whether they were tarps, whether they were small structures, whatever they were, they were designed to collapse immediately, and they would begin to open fire. And the stories are amazing in this respect. This was kind of the dream scenario for the Q-ship. You spot the U-boat, you do a little avoidance, and then you lure the U-boat in, and off you go. The second scenario here is that the U-boat is firing actively on the Q-ship before it really knows that it's even in the, in the vicinity. So if the U-boat is, again, firing torpedoes, you're going to take some mild evasive action to cause a torpedo to miss. If the U-boat is firing the deck gun, the captain of the ship is actually going to slow down is likely going to turn his ship broadside to give the U-boat the biggest target possible, and he is going to wait for the ship to either get shot once or have an incredibly near miss. Maybe it shoots uh, one of the sails out. Maybe it hits an extraneous part of the, of the vessel, or they actually score a hit. Once they score a hit or they barely miss, the panic party gets sent out, the boats get lowered, and then, once again, you wait for the U-boat to come into range and you expose the guns, and you begin firing immediately. The, the advantage that the U-boat had, or rather that the Q-ship had, when attacking a U-boat with the deck gun, is the fact that in order to man that deck gun in a U-boat, you had to climb out what's called the conning tower. We all know what a submarine looks like with that, uh, the thing that juts out of the top of it. That's the conning tower. So people would have to climb up out of that, climb down, run to the gun, load it, and start firing. Well, that takes a little bit of time. doesn't take a long time, but it takes enough time that if you already have your guns primed, ready, and, and manned like they did on the Q-ship, you're going to get a few rounds off before they even have a chance. And if you're wondering why I mentioned in the armaments portion of this show talking about the Q-ships, why they had Lewis guns and Maxim machine guns, well, the reason is because you had guys on the deck of the, your, your Q-ship with the machine guns aimed at the U-boat because you were going to try to machine gun anybody that came out of that conning tower. It's a dangerous game because when you machine gun the guys coming out of the conning tower, eventually the U-boat captain has two options, leave or torpedo you. And at this point, you're at such a tight range that the torpedo is probably not going to miss. So it was a very high-stakes game of poker being played. Now, the third scenario is the U-boat actually hitting the Q-ship with a torpedo. This is usually at close range. And this is a, is a nightmarish scenario because, one, guaranteed to get a hole in your boat, and you're in a boat that is designed to 
not be a warship that is not necessarily designed to take any sort of damage. It will sink very quickly, typically. So a lot of times, panic party gets sent off, obviously. The ship is effectively starting to sink in, in most cases here. And there's one or two options. You either begin to return fire immediately, or in the case of some of these captains who are just brave beyond words, they would actually wait until the ship took on a little bit of a list or took on a little bit of a settle in the water, meaning it was taking on water and it was leaning to one side or it was beginning to, um, uh, you know, it was beginning to sink in one way or the other. But they would often wait a little bit and totally just let the U-boat captain think that he had won the day and he was going to sit there and watch this thing sink and lull them into a false sense of security. And then as the ship begins to list, especially if it's a list that favors your guns, lowers the angle a little bit, then they would open fire and start attacking. Later in the war, meaning in the 20, late 2016, early 2017 time, or not, 1916, 1917 time frame, there were captains that decided the only way Q-ships could work anymore was if they got torpedoed on purpose, if they steered into the torpedoes. Because the ruse had been played out so many times and word had gotten around to the German admirals and the German commanders of these trap ships that the only way that this could work anymore was if you actually tried to get your ship torpedoed on purpose and then fought back. Think about that. Think about signing up for that duty. And your captain going, okay, my philosophy here is I am going to, on purpose, have our ship um, shot with a torpedo. And you're like, okay, and then what? Well, then, hopefully, as we sink, we'll uh, shoot the U-boat. It's like, nah, I think I will uh, be a, you know, a cook on a battleship. I think that's what I'll do instead of this. And that final scenario is that the U-boat shoots and misses with a torpedo. And the shoots and misses with a torpedo one is interesting because you really have a, almost a double win here. One is you've made that guy waste a torpedo which means it's something that he can't use on somebody else. Two, he's probably not going to try twice because you're probably not worth that much to him. And three, in this situation, that the over-aggressive U-boat captains would, would charge way into close range with their deck guns ready to go. And the experienced Q-ship captains, guys that had multiple successes, would know exactly how this would go next because the frustrated U-boat captain missing with his torpedo, having to report back to high command that he's wasted another torpedo, would go in and say, we got to save some face here and let's sink this thing immediately. And it was almost a perfect scenario because being blinded by frustration or anger would allow the Q-ship to just absolutely pour fire into the U-boat as it jumped up out of the ocean far too close for its own good to the sides of the ship. Now, how did this go? How many ships did a Q ship or how many U-boats did a Q ship sink? How successful were they? We can see there was about 200 Q ships created by the British Navy. 58 of them were steamships, 17 of those were sunk. 51 of them were fishing trawlers, 11 of those were sunk. 37 were sailing ships, one of those were sunk. 47 were escort style ships, nine of those were sunk. So out of 193, you have sunk um, a, a good portion of them. Um, uh, you've sunk about a third of them. And of those 193, there's no real way to even know how many of them saw active U-boat confrontation. 
We know that over the course of about 70 skirmishes, 70 interactions between Q-ships and U-boats, 14 to 16 U-boats were sunk over the course of the war, which ain't much, right? That's not much. 16 kills at a cost of at a cost of way more, triple that in Q-ships. It seems like it's a waste of time. It seems like it wasn't an effective strategy. And when you read a lot about these things, you will actually you'll actually hear a lot of people say that they were a waste of time and to say that this was a poor strategy and to say that that these Q-ships just didn't really do anything to move the needle. And I tend to disagree with that. The raw numbers say you're right. The raw numbers say, you know, Germany ends up creating a couple hundred submarines over the course of World War I. You were able to sink basically 15 of them, if, and 15 may be a high estimate. But you were able to damage a lot of them. You were able to cause them to spend time in repair. You were able to cause them to change tactics. You were able to cause them to question what they were doing. And frankly, Britain had nothing to answer these things with in 1914. They had zero. This was quite literally the best option that they could put together. By the time we get to 1917, they've changed tactics. No longer are merchant ships allowed to just go up by themselves. They're now convoys, like we saw in World War II. When you have a convoy of ships, you not only have good protection around them, but you also make it a lot harder for the U-boats to find you. And when they do find you, and there's a convoy of 50 ships, and they have four or five torpedoes, that's not uh, that's not really going to do them a lot of good. They're, they're probably getting one or, two, one or two of you. But remember also, with these convoys, you also now have the ability to shoot depth charges at them. By 1917, the depth charge is becoming a very real fear of U-boat commanders. So the U-boats absolutely won on a tonnage basis. They won on a pound-for-pound basis. They won on a technology basis. But the Q-ships, as simple as they were, and as quick and as cheap as they were, still did have a, a net effect and a positive net effect, in my opinion. Certainly highlighted the bravery of the folks involved, the men that served as as crew and captains on these things. And, you know, I, I, I really have a tough time saying that they were failures because they didn't sink that many of these of these U-boats. They caused fear. They caused consternation. They caused problems. They caused confusion. And... They saved more ships than I think we know about. How do you count ships that weren't sunk? You can't. You can only count the ones that were. So now for the final chapter of this discussion, let's get into some of the most notable interactions between U-boats and Q-ships. And we're going to go through three or four of the great kind of highlights here of the Q-ship era and things that happened which seem straight out of a fiction novel but are actually true. This is a little bit of a blow-by-blow account of some of the great Q-ship fights of all time. So there are so many great stories from this Q-ship era of World War I because of the bravery and just the insanity and the, the seemingly lopsided nature of this fight between a unsuspecting-looking little boat versus a, you know, ominous U-boat. And none really, to me, go further beyond the pale of, of craziness than the story of a very small boat called the Her Majesty's Armed Smack Inverlin. So the Inverlin was quite literally a little fishing boat, 77 feet long, 59 tons, made out of wood, had no engines, two sails, and a single six-pound gun on the deck, one gun. 
So on August 2nd, 1915, the Inverlin is made into a Q-ship. It is fitted with a six-pounder gun, and most um, importantly, it maintains its regular captain and a fishing crew, and there are four new guys on this boat now. And those four new guys are the gunners, the four guys that are that are there only to run this six-pound gun. So this little fishing boat is off the coast of uh, Flanders, France, doing its thing. It's actually with a group of other small fishing vessels. And a couple of them um, get sunk. And they get sunk by a U-boat, a UB-class U-boat, which these were designed, they were smaller. They were designed to operate in the shallower waters of this area. And it is a hotbed of fishing, a hotbed of commerce. So that's why the Germans specifically built U-boats to fight and sink uh, fishing vessels, if you will, in the Flanders area of France on the coast. At about 8 p.m. one evening, UB-4, which is the U-boat that they were attacked by, surfaces near the, the Inverlin. Its captain, Carl Gross, gets up in the, the conning tower and starts shooting or screaming uh, commands at the crew of the fishing boat in German. So they pretended to be confused. They didn't really understand. They were walking around. Meanwhile, these four guys that uh, are there to to run the gun kind of wander over to their position. And as this German captain is screaming and getting closer and getting closer, that U-boat is now within 30 yards of the side of this fishing vessel. All of a sudden, up goes the white battle ensign of the English Navy. Off comes the covering, and these four guys go absolutely bonkers bananas with this six-pound gun. They start shooting. The first three shots hit the conning tower. The second one blasted uh, Captain Gross into the water and blew the bridge right off the top of the conning tower of the submarine. The UB-4 now has no captain and apparently no way to control the rudder, so it starts to drift away. They reposition the little fishing boat, and six more shots they pump into the U-boat from point-blank range. So they're shooting at this thing. It's right next to them. Like, they could reach out and, and, and touch it, basically, to the point where... After they start pumping the rounds into it, uh, one or two of the guys is able to escape as the U-boat goes vertical in the water and goes straight to the absolute bottom of whatever depth they were in. Now, the captain of the fishing vessel actually jumped in and tried to save one or two of the uh, German crewmen, but they got sucked down by the submarine as it was sinking. So this tiny little fishing boat sunk a U-boat. And... One of the gunners, the guy whose last name of uh, Jahan, was given the Distinguished Service Cross as he was uh, apparently the, the gunner that was most accurate or was doing the, the, the kind of uh, figuring on the accuracy of the gun. These guys didn't miss. And it was so close that they shouldn't have missed. But can you imagine you're in a U-boat and a tiny fishing vessel not only starts shooting at you but actually sinks the entire thing? Three weeks later, the Inverlin had another run in with the U-boat and they almost sunk that one. Uh, did not quite go in their favor. And in 1916, the Inverlin was made back into a fishing boat. They took the gun off it, and they went back out with fishing nets and actually fished until February 1st, 1917, where U-55, the German U-boat U-55, sunk the Inverlin, but with no casualties. So likely they allowed them to jump ship before they blasted it to pieces, which it would have gone to pieces. It was a wooden sailing vessel. Another very notable Q-ship battle happened on August 19, 1915 with a a British vessel called the Barralong versus U-27. Lieutenant Commander Godfrey, Godfrey Herbert of the Barralong was leading this charge, and the Barralong was flying the American flag, and the ship was actually 
had the name uh, Ulysses S. Grant painted on the side. So it was the SS Ulysses S. Grant with the American flag on it, but it was actually the Baralong Q ship. I told you about the sinking of the Arabic, or the torpedoing of the Arabic, which was the passenger liner, one of three, that the Germans just couldn't help themselves from shooting at. So in that area was Herbert and his Baralong, and the Arabic was putting out a distress, distress call, and they went rushing over to try to help the Arabic to try to get any survivors out of the water. Unfortunately, the distress call used the wrong coordinates, so when these guys got to the coordinates, there was no ship, there was nothing. But in a positive twist, if you're a Q-ship operator, they found another distressed vessel called the Nicotian. And the Nicotian was disabled. It was hauling 750 mules and war supplies from the United States to England. And the ship was being attacked by U-27. So this was a this was a very fortuitous moment for this crew. They found a transport ship that was about to be sunk. They were able to insert themselves into it and try to give this guy some help. So Herbert, continuing the ruse, flew a flag, a naval flag that is a signal for life-saving, a life-saving distress flag. So when he did that, he basically was indicating, hey, I'm going to go cruise near this Nicotian, and I'm going to get any of the uh, survivors that want to uh, jump ship and, and any of the people that want to, you know, not drown, I'm going to pick them up. So as... Herbert navigates his ship around the backside of the, of the Nicotian. So if the submarine is on the left side of the Nicotian, he sails behind it to the right. And as he is behind it, he swaps the flags from the American flag to the British white battle ensign. And then he unveils the guns, all while he is sitting hidden from the U-boat. So as this Baralong, or as the Germans would know it, the Ulysses S. Grant, slowly emerges from the other side of the Nicotian, all of a sudden, here comes the thunder. And the submarine fired around, and then the ship absolutely opened up on it. Multiple guns, the ship poured four-inch shells into the submarine, and it absolutely sank almost immediately. Now, the problem with the, this incident, and why what makes it so infamous, is that as the submarine was sinking, a lot of the crew was able to escape, and they were able to climb out of the conning tower and you know swim for their lives. Because the Nicosian was under attack by the submarine, they had lowered the nets on the side of the boat for their crew to climb down and escape in the lifeboats. Well, those nets were allowing the escaped German sailors from the submarine to climb into the Nicosian. So Herbert makes an executive decision here. And because the Germans were known for dynamiting ships as much as they were known for torpedoing and shooting them with deck guns, he decided that he could not trust any of them, and Herbert had every single survivor killed. And there is debate to this day whether that was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, whether it was a war crime. The Germans certainly certainly thought it was a war crime. Uh, it did not play very well in the international press because, um, uh, you know, the reports were that these guys were unarmed and the British came off of their barrelong, went on to the Nicotian, and basically just uh, kind of execution style took these guys out. So that was a uh, that was a big one. It was certainly a, the, the naval part of it was a morale boost, and it was brilliant seamanship by Herbert. By using the, the Nicotian as a, effectively as a shade or as a blocker, 
going around the backside of it and then emerging with the battle flag up and the guns ready to fire. That was pretty awesome stuff. We now go to April 15, 1916. It's the Farnborough versus U-67 Lieutenant Commander Gordon Campbell is running, or I should say is in charge of the Farnborough. Campbell and his guys go six months without seeing a U-boat. They go to port, and within basically one day, they left and sunk U-68 off the coast of Ireland, put the whole crew down with it. So that's in March, March 22nd. So basically three weeks later, cruising in a kind of a misty, crummy, pea soup fog kind of day, Campbell sees a Dutch ship and then a submarine. And there's some confusion with that Dutch ship and, and what's going on because of the mist and the fog. The submarine fired and missed. Now, the submarine was not firing at the Farnborough. The submarine was firing at the other third ship I've been talking about here, the second ship, if you will. We have a submarine and two ships. And so when the submarine fired and missed at the Dutch ship, one of the gunners on the Q ship thought that the submarine was firing at them. So without being ordered by Captain Campbell, they opened fire. And this confusion was uh, was not great because now the, the jig was up and Campbell had to had to order all of his guns to open up because he was in a fight for his life. Now, that U-boat may not have ever attacked them at all or it certainly would have not done so in the position it was in had it known this was a Q-ship. And if those guys on the Q-ship had not fired back, they would have been able to maintain that uh, that kind of clandestine position for a little bit. But the... Guns began firing, and at a 1,000 yards, they hit the sub three times. The submarine began to dive, and I say began to dive because this was a process that would take a, a, an amount of time to get that thing under the water. So as it's trying to dive, the, the crew is, is firing shells at it. They hit it three times, and then it goes, what they assume, in a static position under the water. So Campbell, who has just, who has just giant courages, I guess I would call them, takes his his Farnborough ship and sails it directly over top of where that submarine was. And when he gets to it, he actually uses two depth charges. They throw them over the sides, and they go down to whatever depth they have them set at, and they explode. And in this moment, it became the first time a submarine in the history of mankind was ever sunk with a depth charge. They had wounded the submarine with the three direct hits they scored on it with the deck gun, but it was the depth charges that actually disrupted the thing enough and broke enough stuff internally in the sub that it sent it to the bottom of the ocean. Pretty wild stuff. The Farnborough and Campbell had very, very decorated uh, decorated careers. Now, what's interesting as well is some of the crew was able to make a, a jump out of that before that sub actually went down not to the depths of the bottom, but what, before it actually submerged itself to hide, a few of the crew had escaped. And what's interesting is that they were picked up and they were treated with more kindness, certainly, than the uh, other crew had been treated that was gunned down by the Barillon crew. Finally, I wanted to share the story of the Mary B. Mitchell, which is one of um, dozens of of sailing ships that were converted into Q ships. And again, the idea of a three masted schooner fighting a submarine on the ocean is so fascinating to me. And the Mary B. Mitchell uh, was in multiple fights with submarines and it began life even in a strange way. 
before being called the Mary B. Mitchell, it was called the Prize, and it was a German uh, freight, a German schooner, a German uh, merchant ship that was confiscated by the British government. And so nicknamed the, it was named the prize because it was taken as a, a prize of war, apparently. Early on, after it was armed, it was involved in a battle with the U-93, which was one of the best, most advanced submarines that the Germans had created yet. U-93 was a study in technology, and the prize was a study in sailing ships from 200 years ago. Granted, it was made of iron. It was not a wood-sided ship, but still, it was a sailing ship. U-93 had been on one heck of a run. It had sunk 11 ships, one of the best, most disciplined, most talented, most devious, most brutal submarines in the entire German fleet. Lieutenant W.E. Sanders was the captain of the Mary B. Mitchell. The captain of the U-boat saw the Mary B. Mitchell and said, you know what, we got 11 done, I want to make it 12, because he was on his way back. They were on their way back to Germany when they spot the Mitchell. So the, the submarine surfaces and just starts shooting up the schooner all over the place. There are shells blowing up on the decks. There are shells blowing up on the in, to the sides. There are shells passing straight through the hull. Inside the boat, everybody's staying hidden, and they're waiting and they're waiting, and they're continuing to watch their boat get shot to pieces, and the captain's waiting, and he's not letting him fire yet, and he's not letting him fire yet. And then that submarine pulled within 70 yards of the side of the Mary B. Mitchell, and up went the battle ensign, and up came the guns, and open came the fire. So the submarine was sitting totally still. The ship opens fire, and then the submarine tried to ram the schooner, but missed. So out of pure frustration or anger, the captain of the submarine put the thing on ramming speed and tried to hit it and break the hull, break the keel of the ship, and have it sink. So as the ramming mission failed, they repositioned themselves, and they kept taking fire from this schooner. Now one shell from the schooner actually shot the gun right off the deck of the submarine, killing the entire gunnery crew. Then the next couple of shots blew off the conning tower, and then they started using the machine guns to take on the anybody else that was trying to get out of it. They shot 36 rounds at this thing. The sub goes down stern first. Captain Von Spiegel and two officers jump to freedom to save their life. And the U-93, by all appearances, heads to the bottom of the ocean. The crew of the Mary B. Mitchell is rewarded. They are celebrated. They are heroicized internally, quietly, and certainly not in the public eye. Nobody knew about these things really until after the war. And certainly the awards that were given to the sailors on these ships were not ever told to by the public. You would be awarded some of the most distinguished stuff you can get in the world of the English military, but the only people that ever knew it were you and your commander because they had to keep the Q-boat, the Q-ship enterprise silent. The crew has also paid their 1,000-pound bounty for the sinking of the U-93. Captain Von Spiegel was complimentary to the crew of the Mary B. Mitchell. He was impressed by their perseverance and their dedication and their guts. But there's one thing that Von Spiegel didn't know at that moment, was that 
perseverance and guts and skill were also being applied in the U-93. Because despite the fact it was shot to kingdom come, they actually made it all the way back to Germany. And the ship didn't sink. And they did repair it. And the U-93 was actually back out on the ocean again. The following January, it was on the ocean and it was rammed by a steamship and sunk. That was the end of the U-93. What became of the prize? Well, the prize became a a fixation for the Imperial commanders or the commanders of the German Imperial Navy. And they wanted it gone very, very quickly, and they wanted it gone publicly. And the prize was torpedoed and sunk after a couple of more submarine engagements down the line. That is a look at Q-ships. And again, I just want to reiterate the fact that When we look at the hard numbers here, we say, oh, they only sank like 16 submarines. The fact that they sank anything is astonishing. If you're driving in your car right now, you're at your desk or something like that, think of a sailing ship, then think of a submarine, and then think of them fighting and the sailing ship winning. Even if it's one out of a thousand times, it is still astonishing, and it was way more than one out of a thousand times. The outright sinkings, to me, don't define the success or failure of the Q-ships. The fact that they were able to damage, slow down, and cause confusion and, and uh, a strategic strategy, a strategic change in the way that the German submarine captains would approach and attack merchant vessels says it all. No, they didn't win the, the naval war for, for England. No, they didn't have the deciding outcome effect on World War I. But boy, did they put up a heck of a fight, and boy, did they do it in a very innovative way. I hope you've enjoyed this look back into the world of mechanical wildness known as Q-ships versus U-boats. It is the 1,000-ton sucker punch, the little nondescript-looking steamer, all of a sudden unloading its guns into a German U-boat. Wild stuff, and we'll have more wild stuff coming up soon in the next episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you go to dorkomotive.com. You can buy Dorkomotive gear there. You can check stuff out. You can support the show, and I'd love to have you check it out. I'm Brian Loans. Thanks again. This has been another episode of Dorkomotive. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com. And remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more.